Thank you for coming and welcome you to being here. I have all sorts of information to share about VBS. Obviously, this is not our normal stage. This is not what it normally looks like. And there is a lot that happened this week. And I just want to let you know, it took over 580 man hours to do everything that you saw around this church and all the different rooms and all the different designs and the sets and everything that took place. We had 62 volunteers from our church that took time out of their week, out of their day, to invest in all the kids, to have them here. We had uh, 91 students registered that showed up this week on our church campus, and we served over 770 snacks. There was a lot of theme-based koala snacks, and I think there was a hedgehog snack. There was a lot of different snacks, a lot of different themes. And so there was a lot that went on. We raised, this is what I love, the kids raised with their change that they brought in $431 that would, yeah, isn't that cool? That's going to go to the Children's Hunger Fund, and that gets doubled out. So they're actually going to feed all sorts of people all over the area to help with that. And I think the boys won. If I'm correct, at the end of the day, the boys won and the girls lost. And my wife went very hard to make that happen, I think. I don't know if it worked out. Um, we spent a lot of time. Every day was a theme that we had with the students that we were working through. The first day is the idea that God, you are made in God's image, that there is something different about us from the rest of cre creation that we are made to reflect and to show who God is through our lives. The second day is that we are made with an amazing design. It was not some random chance that we ended up on this planet with arms and legs and eyes and ears in the way that they work, that God has made us very specifically to bring him glory. Day three was that we are made with worth, that everyone has worth and value, that there is sanctity of life, that God values life, that he has given us life as a gift, and we're to, to honor and to respect that. The fourth day was that we are made in relationship, and that was the day that we shared the gospel with the kids, that, that God loves us, that God cares for us. They went to great lengths to show that we need to be connected to him in relationship to him. And so we shared the message of Jesus Christ, how he went to the cross and died on the cross so we could be in that relationship with God. And then the fifth day is that we are made for a reason, that there is a purpose to who we are, that God has a reason for us to be here. Though it may feel like we don't, we do. That God has a purpose for me, for you, for all of us in our lives. And with that, we had a decision night, and there was... 15 children that ticked the box on their card saying they wanted to have some kind of relationship with Jesus. And that is something, yeah, that is something to celebrate. That seeds were planted in the lives of these young boys and girls to know that there's a God that loves them, cares for them, and has created them for him. We had 20 kids that marked the box that I want to know more about Jesus. I want to hear more about who he is. And so there's so many things that happen, and I can stand up here literally for the rest of the service and thank all the people involved, but I want to thank Ed and her team. She, she not only did this, but the week before she was at camp. So she did a camp with a bunch of kids, came off of camp, and continued to do VBS. So the team that she's put together is fantastic. We've had to tell her to go home many times to go sleep. Because she won't. She just goes, goes, goes because she's so good. Um, all the stuff that you see here is Rich and his team, what they did, how they designed it. It's amazing what they put together. They just make things magical. And so I'm just, we're so grateful for them. We're so grateful for this week. And here's the thing. At the end of the day, here's what it's about. It's not about me. It's not about the church. It's not about the workers who did everything. 
It's about lifting the name of Jesus higher than anything else in the world. That it is all about Jesus and what he did. That we want God to be glorified through all of that. So, thank you for everyone that participated. Thank you for everyone that was involved. We hope that it was a blessing to your children when they came this week. Now, with that, I should probably preach a sermon on something. Because I'm going to not get paid if I don't do that. Um, we are continuing our sermon series in Psalms. Uh, this is going to be Psalm 91 this week that we're in. And as I was working through this psalm, there's a lot of things that I was focusing on. But I started thinking about when I went to school. Now, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't have a church background. And so when I started going to church, everything was new for me. That was about my, my high school year. I was at a church in uh, Los Gatos, California called Calvary Baptist Church. That's where I came to the Lord. That's where I got baptized. That's where all of my life totally changed for the better. And I remember uh, going to missions trips. We'd go to Mexico and different places. We went to Australia, oddly enough. And, and we did that as well. But they wanted us to be trained to know how to share the gospel. The gospel is what we're all about. It's what we talk about every single week. If we don't talk about the gospel, we're doing something wrong. And they said, if you're going to share the gospel, you need to kind of know what the gospel is and how to do it. And so we'd have visitors that would come to our church, and we would follow up with a visit just to say, hey, thanks for coming. And the hope would be that we'd have an opportunity to share the gospel. So we'd go and do visitations, and we'd share the gospel. Now, occasionally, you know someone whose house you go to that came to visit, and you go on that. So they had the youth go and do that. And I ended up sitting in a living room one afternoon with one of the guys I went to school with. His name was Josh. And I went to school with Josh, and we had classes together, and we ate lunch together, and we'd play basketball and stuff like that. But um, I remember sitting there and going, wow, I'm in Josh's room. I'm in his living room. I'm sitting here, and the girl that was with me, she ended up sharing the gospel with Josh. And in that moment, Josh came to Jesus. He's like, yes, I agree. I understand. I'm a sinner. I need Christ. And he repented of his sin and turned to Jesus. And that was the first time I'd ever seen someone do that before. And I'm like, this is crazy. That's all you got to do? And people just come to Jesus? And so that happened. So I'm excited. He's excited. And I was like, wow, God is so good. But then I distinctly remember about two to three days after Josh came to Christ, his brother, his older brother, died unexpectedly, just out of the blue. And I was like, wait a minute. I thought you come to Jesus and he makes our lives better. I thought, I thought you came to Jesus and, and things were going to be good. Like, this doesn't seem better. This kind of seems worse. Like, why is this happening to Josh? And I remember Josh was kind of like, I'm confused. And he struggled through that as well. Like, I, I don't understand what's happening right now. Like, and my pastor came along. He talked with them. He, he spent time praying with them to walk them through the reality of what that is. Now, maybe... You've had that thought too. Maybe you've heard about that and say, well, you know, who doesn't want their life to be better? Who doesn't want it to be great and fantastic? Well, there are many people that will teach you that if you follow God, if you give Christ your life, that it will be easier, that it will be better, that you will be blessed with all the worldly things, that all your problems will go away. And if bad things do happen, then clearly you have some lack of faith or there's some sin in your life or you've done something wrong. Here's the problem with all that theology I just laid out. The Bible. That's the problem. The Bible never actually says any of that stuff. As a matter of fact, the Bible would, would point out and say over and over again that, that life is hard. That life is going to be difficult. That sin has ruined everything. 
And that you should actually anticipate, as a believer specifically, that life will be difficult for you as you go through this life. You're like, Simon, that is not a good pitch to come to Jesus. But it's what it says. And we'll talk a little bit more about that because here's the thing. Today, the psalm that we're going to be in is going to address this very issue. And I would say this, if we're not careful... We can read the psalm today and start to believe things that aren't true about Jesus if we don't understand what's going on and what's happening. So I'm going to mix it up a little bit today. I'm going to pray, and eventually we're going to get to the passage. So let me pray and ask God to bless this time. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would just prepare the hearts of the men and women that are here today to hear the message of truth that you have for them. Lord, I ask that we would understand what it means that you are our shelter that you are our refuge, that you are our hiding place, that you are our protector that cares for us. Lord, for those that are going through difficult times, I ask that you would speak to them today. For those that are struggling and and they're having moments of doubt in their life, that you would remove those doubts with the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross. Lord, if there are things that I've written down that are not from you, please take them away from my sermon. I don't want to be a distraction to the truth of who you are. If there's things that you want me to say that I need to say this morning, that you would allow me to do that in a way that points to you in all things. We love you. We're thankful for your son dying on the cross. We're thankful for this time together. And I thank you for all these guests. Pray this in your beautiful and glorious name. Amen. All right. Well, last week we talked a little bit about kind of how the book of Psalms was developed and why it's there. And I talked about the idea that it's a book that's actually five books combined into one. <clears throat> and that's, we kind of talk through that, and there's a few different thoughts on why the Bible and, and why the book of Psalms is put together that way. Uh, some would say that it's actually based off the five books of the, of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, that that's what it's based off of. Some would say that it actually is the, the arc of the, the rule and the reign of David and his kingship and what that looked like. And there's a couple different thoughts, but as we see, as we come into Psalm um, 91, we need to understand what's going on behind it. We need to know the couple of psalms before that because sometimes we'll read psalms and go, this is a great psalm. I love this psalm. And you can jump around and it's okay. But a lot of the psalms are interconnected. And they actually, one psalm leads to the next psalm, which leads to the next psalm. And that's what we have in this. And so what we have is that uh, before Psalm 91, we have book three that's coming to an end. But we need to know what's going on in book three to get to book four, which is where Psalm 91 lands. And so as you look at book three, you need to understand there's a lot of things that are going on. And and God wants to show how to apply this to your life. See, book three takes place with the exile of God's people. Israel is scattered. Israel is no longer in their homeland. They've been taken captive by Babylon at this time. And so they're dispersed. There's a lot of people that have died. They're in a place they don't want to be. They really want to get back to the promised land that God had offered to them and given to them. And so you have Psalm 89. And that is a book of lament. That is a psalm of lament, a psalm of mourning. It's a song where they realize we don't like where we are. We're unhappy with where we are. We know that a lot of this is based out of us, but they start to talk about different things in that psalm, and there's reminders that are happening. And what they're doing is remembering King David and what was promised to King David by God, that God said, I will bless you, that you will be a great nation, that this kingdom will never end, that there'll be a greater king that's going to come that's going to accomplish so much more than you could ever realize and imagine. 
And the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 9, 7, would say this. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you see, as these men and women are in a spot they don't want to be, are uncomfortable, are in much suffering, they start remembering the promises of God and what he's done and what he's going to do. That's what they're doing in this moment. Now, as book three ends, we come into book four. And this is where we're going to find our song. And they're singing about God's faithfulness. They're singing about how he's steadfast. And then Psalm 90 hits. And Psalm 90 is actually kind of a weird psalm. It's the prayer of Moses. Now, if you know the timelines at all, Moses was way, way before all this stuff happened. And so they're in exile. They're singing about King David. But then all of a sudden, they insert Psalm 89, which is a, song, a, a, a prayer of Moses. Now, if you don't understand who Moses is and what he represents, it can be kind of confusing. It can seem really out of left field, like, why are they talking about Moses now? See, Moses was the one who led the people in the book of Exodus out of the hands of Egypt. He is kind of the deliverer. He was the one that God said, I'm going I'm to have you go. I'm gonna, you're going to gather my people. We're going to get out of here. We're going to take you to the promised land, and I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to make a covenant with you. All those things are going to happen. And so he leads them out of slavery, literal slavery, spiritual slavery, and he says, you're my people. I love you. I care about you. I heard you cry out to me, and I'm going to answer you. And this prayer comes after he had led the people out of Egypt. They'd gone across the Red Sea. They're about to go into the promised land. They're at the Jordan River. They're like, we're going to take it, and here's the problem. They get scared. They go, oh, they're really tall. That's kind of like their big thing. They're tall. <laughs> yes, but God's taller. That's the big idea. They didn't trust God. They didn't believe God in that moment. And so what ends up happening is the 40 years of wandering in the desert is a result of not trusting and believing God. And so Psalm 89, this prayer of Moses, is his prayer as they have been wandering the desert. And they're wandering around and they're talking about the promises of God and the faithfulness of God. And that next generation, generation had risen up. And they have this, this line in verse uh, 14. How long, O Lord? How long? There's this waiting. But what happens in the waiting is they keep trusting and believing that God will deliver them because they saw God deliver them already. They saw the fact that they were in suffering, they were in anguish, they were in distress, yet God delivered them. And they're saying, how long until we get to be delivered? And they're singing these songs. They're remembering God's faithfulness in the midst of suffering. See, Moses' prayer points to the fact that they did cry out, and God hears you. And I want to tell you something. If you are in a difficult situation, in a difficult spot, all you have to do is cry out to the Lord, and he hears you, and he listens. He says he heard the cries and the prayers of his people, and he came to free them. God hears you. God listens. God wants to be engaged in your life. He's not far off. 
And so as we see Psalm 89 paints a picture of being in exile, we see that Psalm 90 is the prayer of Moses, which causes him to remember God's faithfulness to his people. Now that leads us to Psalm 91. So what is Psalm 91? Psalm 91 is the answer to their singing and their prayers to God in this difficult situation. So we literally get the answer from God to his people that are crying out to him. And that is what Psalm 91 is. And so now we can read the psalm. Psalm 91, 1 through 16. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that waits at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but you will not come, it will not come near you. But you will look with your eyes and see the recumbents of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge." No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That is where we are today. This is happening in the context of a group of people that are sitting in a difficult time they have gone through tremendous suffering and loss yet we see the words that God is going to use to describe him and his people is a refuge a fortress a dwelling place a shield and a covering the mega theme in this passage is that God is my refuge if he is yours he is your refuge so what is a refuge a refuge is a place of security. We hear the word refugees all the time, right? Those that are going from a dangerous situation to a safe situation. That's what they're doing. A fortress is a, is a place of protection that defends against attacks. It doesn't mean the attacks will stop. It doesn't mean the attacks will go away. But it means that there is safety. And the place of safety in this passage is in God. That's what he's trying to communicate. See, God wants his people to know that they can have confidence through dangers. They can have confidence through difficulties and challenges that happen in a fallen, broken world. See, the world's going to throw stuff at you all the time. We, I, I'm not saying anything new. This is not rocket science. It's a hard world. There's difficulties in this world. It's a result of sin and the fallen nature of humanity. That is what we're dealing with. And it is there. And as I was studying this, what we see is that God is trying to instill greater faith in his people. That he's trying to make sure that their hope does not fail. And we see there's a couple of big ideas. One is danger. If you take out all the different pictures and analogies of dangers, we have a lot of them. 
we see that it's a, a snare of a hunter. Pestilence is, is, is listed twice. Tear of night, arrows, lions, snakes, darkness, destruction, stones, and death. Like, that's a, that's a pretty stout list of danger. I'm like, yeah, that, that pretty much covers all of it. There's a lot of bad things there. See, God acknowledges it. He's like, yeah, I know. I see it. I see all of it. You don't have to be afraid, though. You don't have to fear when these dangers come. Death is on there for a reason, because death is the biggest fear. Death is the biggest danger. Well, what, is, what does God do to answer his people? How does he respond to them as they're looking at this list of danger? He's going to show them that there's something else that he's talking about. It's protection. He says that he's a, a shelter. There's something about, um, if you ever watch people at a park when it rains, it doesn't rain ever here, but if you're ever at a park and it rains, what do people do? They run to a, some kind of shelter. I got to get under a tree. I got to get under some overhang. I got to go get into a car, right? They feel the attacks and they run to a shelter to keep them from getting wet. So, uh, if you've ever lived in the desert, if you've experienced the desert, the, the thing that you run to in the desert is shade. The sun is wickedly evil hot. I don't like the sun. It, it just hurts. It hurts all the time. So I'm always looking for shade. You go to a shade to cover yourself from that. And it's, it's amazing that a small cover with a little bit of shade is enough to cool you down to where you can tolerate the heat that you're going through in that moment. It says that he's a refuge, a safe place to go. I mean, you look at the Ukrainians, they are fleeing to all these countries where it's safer. They're going to a place where they can actually not be under threat of bombing and death. That he's a fortress. That he is a, a strong castle with thick walls. That as wave against wave of the enemy attacks, it stands and it doesn't fall. It says that he's a shield. That there are... There are these big shields that they would carry and the, the arrows would be blocked by that fiery arrows. It talks about the fiery arrows of the devil that he would shoot at us, that it's going to block us from those shields. And then it says that he's a buckler. Anyone know what a buckler is? I didn't. I had to look it up. It's a little shield. So you got the big shield and the buckler is the small shield that's strapped to the other arm. And that would be when a sword or a club comes at you. You can block with that. You can defend with that as well. So there's the far off attacks and then there's the up close attacks that are personal that you can defend against those so they won't kill you and maim you and wound you. That's what a buckler is. It says that he's a dwelling place and a tent. Now, it's funny when you go camping and you're out in the middle of the wilderness, you always want to be in a tent, even though it's like this thin material that like, it, like a squirrel could get through. You're like, but I feel safe. I feel comforted inside the tent. I don't know what it is. There's nothing safe about a tent. But we think it's safe, don't we? Because it's a place where we feel like we are protected, we're surrounded, we're encompassed by something. And this is how God is communicating who he is to his people. He doesn't want them to lose their faith. He wants them to continue to fight, to hold to their faith in who he is and what he's done. He, he wants to fight so they'll have hope. And not just hope today, but hope in a future of what's coming. 
See, God has promised that he paints this picture of safety, a shelter from the elements, a protection from the sun, from the fortresses that overtake. All those things have been painted so we would have strength in that, so we would have confidence in that. So when we have the elements and the sun and the arrows and the swords and the attack and the elements, he's saying, there is safety within me. You're not alone. You're not in danger. He says that even though Thousands may fall, 10,000 may fall at my side. Those that are mine, those that call me their Lord, will not fall. They will not be destroyed. They will not die. He actually says that God commands his angels, his warrior angels, to protect us, to not allow the enemy to defeat us or overtake us. It says that the lion and the serpent will be trampled underfoot. Now that's pointing to a couple of things, right? That's pointing backwards. And that's pointing forward in Scripture. It's actually a really neat section that we have in Scripture. It, uh, it points back to when sin entered the world in Genesis 3. That's what it's talking about. That the serpent came and he lied to Adam and Eve and said, Oh, did God really say, will you really die? No, you'll be like him. And what is he doing in that moment? He's twisting and manipulating what God said to get them to do what? To doubt God to not trust God. Because here's the thing. The enemy knows that God is the source of all life and that those who are connected to him will have life. He wanted to be God. He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to be the powerful one that everyone worshipped and bowed down to, but he couldn't. So what is he doing now? He's trying to destroy everyone that loves and worships God. He's trying to drag them down and pull them away so they will die too, that they will have the same fate that he has. That's what he's doing. And so he twists that. But then we see that there is this consequence after the sin that God says to them. He says, there's going to be this, the serpent will come. What's, what's going to happen to the serpent's head? It's going to be crushed. That the serpent will be crushed underfoot. And so it's talking about this one that would come that would destroy the serpent, his evil, his, and the sin in this world. That's what he's talking about. And so he says that this is going to take place. And that there's going to be a hero. And this hero's name we know now is Jesus, that he's the one that came. He is the one who crushes a serpent's head. He is the one that kills sin, that conquers sin and death. But it also takes us to this moment in the gospel. If you know your Bible, you know that Jesus went out and he was tempted for... 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, right? So we kind of know that story. But then Satan comes and he goes to, to, to work on him to see if he can get him to fail like he got Adam and Eve to fail. Okay, so he goes to him. And what we see is in verse uh, is it 10 and 11, it goes in his four is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on the other hand, he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. He's saying, jump off this cliff. And then he starts quoting scripture of why he should do it. What's he doing again? He is manipulating and twisting the word of God. As if he's like, you need to command God. You, you need to make God show you who he is. And, and God's like, no one commands God. God is the commander. God is the one who decides what he's going to do. See, Satan will use these words all the time to, to twist scripture. He wants to. That's what he does best. He's not creative. He just takes things that have already been said and tweaks them. And Jesus is like, no. Because he actually answers with Scripture. He says, you shall not put your Lord, your God, to the test. So he quotes Scripture. And I was like, oh, you think you got that? I'm going to do it the right way. He says, no. I'm going to do what God's plan is. 
And in that moment, we see that nothing was the same again. He was the second Adam, the second Adam that actually did what we were supposed to do that we couldn't do in our own power. And I don't know what your background is in God's word. I don't know what your background is in understanding the Bible and reading it. But chances are Satan has thrown verses at you in your life to make you doubt who God is. Because you read this and go, well, I'm supposed to be protected. I'm supposed to be safe. My life's supposed to be good. But that's not what he's talking about. See, a lot of false churches have come up and they will teach a, a gospel of prosperity and wealth and health that your life will be void of problems if you say you love God. But we know what, like, we know, like, I love Jesus and my life is not perfect. My life is hard. You know that life is hard. See, God never promises that he's going to protect you from all trouble. As a matter of fact, that's what I was talking about earlier. In Luke, in Luke 21, 16 through 18, Jesus says this. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated for all my name's sake. But not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. And then in 1 Peter, it says this in, uh, was it, 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery, fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So he's like, not only will it be hard, you really shouldn't be surprised. As a matter of fact, you should be expecting the fact that if you are going to say no to Satan and yes to God, that Satan's going to throw everything he can against you so you will fail, that you will stumble, and that you will doubt and reject God. You should expect that. But here's the thing that gets really weird. As we're reading the words of Christ, he says, some of you will die. But then he says, not a hair on you shall perish. Now, last I checked, when you die... All the hairs perish. What is he talking about? Like, what is Jesus saying in this moment that we won't perish? And this is the big thing. See, Jesus had an eternal perspective on everything. He saw everything for what it truly is and how it truly functions. We are looking through a very small peephole that's, that's like blurred. And all we see is what we're in in this moment, don't we? We barely see behind us what we went through in our own lives. And we think, is this all that there is? This must be all that there is. And if this is all that there is, then when you do die, then I guess that would be it, wouldn't it? But Jesus said, no, there is so much more beyond this moment. There is so much more beyond what you see that there's an eternal thing. Like this life that we live in, this hundred-ish years, is a blip on the screen that will end very quickly in the scope of eternity. That's what he's saying. So there's so much more to this. And if you're thinking about this, this physical death, the spiritual death is so much more important than the thing that you're talking about right now. And we need to get right with God so we will not endure the spiritual death that's been inflicted upon everyone because of sin as it has entered the world. See, he, he's showing that God is going to win, not Satan. He won't be victorious. We know the ending. We can read the ending. Jesus wins. Very easily, too. It's not a big battle. It's like, hey, you lose. They're like, okay. Like, that's the battle. That's the big battle. It's not like, they just show up like, we win. They're like, okay. That's it. So, so the question then is, 
if being connected to God takes care of the death problem, if it takes care of the sin problem, how in the world do we be connected to God? What do we do with that? Well, in Colossians 3.3, it gives us what that looks like. It says this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And I, I, I was drawn to that verse as we're looking at shelters and refuges and the covering of God and His wings. To be hidden in Christ is to be in the shelter, the true shelter that brings hope and peace and that keeps death off our doorstep. See, Jesus is our refuge from death. He is our fortress from the enemy of death. His wings, the pinions are the long feathers that they cover over me from the harm that would come. We talk about how mother hens will collect their baby chicks within them and they'll cover them up. They'll take the brunt of the attack and the danger so the chicks will live. That is the picture that God is painting of us as Jesus surrounds us and covers us with his wings. That Jesus is my shield from the fiery arrows that Satan would want to shoot at me to get me to doubt, to not believe and trust that he is good. That he's my buckler that takes across the sword attacks that come that are right in my face. That he is the one that tramples the head of the serpent and that he guards me from the sin of this world if our life is hidden in him. See, that's what we spent the entire week trying to explain to these kids on this stage. That's exactly what we did. We talked about the fact that they were made in the image of God and that God loves them and cares for them, that we have worth and value. But the problem is that when sin came into the world, it ruined everything. It broke the relationship that we had with God. It no longer allowed us to be in that proximity towards Him. And then the Bible would say that the wages of sin is death and that everyone has sinned. So now we have this massive problem. Like, what do we do with this sin that keeps us from God? What do we do when God has to punish sin and we're the ones that are sinning? That means that we have an issue. But we see that Jesus comes and lives a life that we couldn't live. He lived a perfect life. He, he honored God constantly in every second of every day that he lived on this earth. He lived the life that we were supposed to live, but couldn't. And then he became a substitution. And he said, I'm going to take your place. That you have earned God's wrath. You have earned his punishment. But I'm going to put that on myself. And I'm going to take that punishment. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die in your stead so you don't have to. So you can be with God. Like, when we say that Jesus loves you, that's how much he loves you. That he would lay down his life so you could have life. He's the mother hen. He's the shield. He's the fortress. He's the refuge that takes the attack so we don't die. That's who he is. That's what he does. This is what we have in Christ. If you says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you will be saved. And I, and I, I never really understood the idea of being in Christ for a long time. But as I've preached it more and more, what that means is that if we are in Christ... We have all the benefits that he has. He died on the cross for our sins, right? But if our life is hidden in him, what happened three days later? He rose again. That means he conquered sin and he conquered death. That means that he will be 
with God for eternity. If my life is hidden in him, I now have victory over sin and death, and I have eternal life now. That's what it means to be hidden in Christ. That's who we are if you've placed your life in his life. Basically, you're saying, like, my life is going to get me a whole lot of wrath. Jesus' life gets a whole lot of glory. I'm going to go ahead and put my life in, in what Jesus did, not in my own life. That's what you're saying in that moment. That's all you're saying. See, the truth is that this psalm means that we're not protected from all trouble, but it means that we are protected in and through trouble. What allowed my friend Josh to get through the fact that he comes to Jesus and his brother who he loved deeply and dearly? How did he get through that? Jesus got him through that. Jesus walked with him when he was in, uh, in Iraq. When he went out to Iraq, he was with him and helped him get through that very difficult time as well. That he was with him as a shelter and a protector. He got through the situations because Jesus was there. And I don't know what you are in the midst of. I don't know what danger and situation. Maybe your marriage is like hanging by a thread right now. Maybe your marriage is about to fall apart and you're like, I don't know how to get through this. Maybe your kids are out of control, older or younger. It doesn't really matter. They're, when they're out of control, they're out of control. And you're like, I don't know what to do with my kids. Maybe your job is like you're, you're barely able to go to work. You're, you're about to lose your job, that things aren't working out the way you want them to. Maybe financially you're like, I don't know what to do. They're talking about a recession. I can barely pay my bills now. If gas goes up another 25 cents, like I got to start walking. Like I don't know what to do. But what I'm telling you is this, that Jesus loves you and cares for you and will give you the ability to endure and not just endure, but thrive in those moments. You ever wonder when you look at the history books, when the men and women that loved Jesus in the early church, like they were like, they were dying and singing hymns to God as they were being killed. What does that? The love of a God who sent his son to die in their place, that they know that this is a momentary blip on the screen. See, the God that delivers people from Egypt and the God that delivers people from the Babylonians is the same God that delivered us from death and from sin. If you realize all these events are pointing to the bigger event, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until God takes care of the biggest problem, which is sin. And what I love in the last part of this psalm is that the writer has been writing as, I'm going to tell you what God is saying. But then at the very end in verse 14, what we see is that it shifts and it's God speaking. And this is what God says. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. Does trouble go away? No. He will be with me in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That salvation comes from the Lord. And he's saying that there is salvation that awaits anyone who is hidden in me. See, he protects those that know his name. Jesus is the name above all names. When we call out to him, he answers us in our trouble. He is asking you to call out to him, to humble yourself and say, God, I can't, you can, please help me, save me. He will satisfy us and give us his salvation. 
Jesus has answered our sin and brokenness and our need and our trouble. For those that don't know Jesus, you can have this today by calling on the name of Jesus for your salvation. But what I've noticed is I, I walk around the world and I talk with Christians all the time and I talk with you and I know you and I love you guys and I hear about how, how you're just struggling. I hear about the struggles in your life. What I want you to know, this is a momentary affliction. There is something beyond this. So it may seem like you can't get through the current situation you're in, that you have hope. You have a God with steadfast love who cares for you, who loves you, who's gone to great lengths to procure your life for eternity. This too shall pass. It will fade away. And on the other side of eternity, when we stand before God, we won't care about any of this stuff. It'll all be kind of it's a, a comical joke at the end because we'll be with our God and our Maker and our Savior for forever. That is the hope that we have to endure this moment. So don't lose heart. Read this psalm and realize that you're in good company. Just like the Israelites that cried out, their God heard and answered them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this psalm of encouragement. I thank you for this psalm that points to you as being the place that we can run to, that we can have shelter in, that we can have refuge in, that you guard us and protect us from, from the eternal death that awaits all, that you give us hope and life, that you show us through your word that you are a God that keeps promises, that you are a God that stays with his people for forever. Lord, may we hold to that. May we believe that. When it seems like the world is falling apart, you are our mighty fortress. You are our refuge. and you, we place our trust and our hope for all things. We love you. And Lord, I ask that there are people here that need to cry out to you today, that they would cry out to you, that you would answer them and show them your goodness. Pray these things in your glorious name. Amen.